and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. My name's Jeremy Gordon and I'm joined on the podcast today by J.O. Hambro Capital Management's Alex Savides. Alex launched the £1.1 billion JOHCM UK Dynamic Fund in 2008 and has been running it ever since, with a focus on investing in UK companies which have come unstuck in some way, often engaging directly with management to try to spark a revival. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today. So firstly, you know, what, what is the um, JOHCM UK Dynamic Fund in a nutshell? Have I, have I teed it up correctly in that intro? Uh, I think you have. Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, we try to focus on companies that have um, fallen on tough times uh, mm-hmm. and are going through some form of strategic uh, or business transformation. Um, the idea behind that is that, you know, we, we, we see our sort of sole focus and purpose as trying to support businesses that are changing for the better. Um, and that typically means that we're backing companies that are going through some form of management and strategic change. And we um, sort of um, get involved at that moment of change. And typically at that moment in, of change, there's quite a lot of uncertainty in the stock market's view of the company, which therefore manifests often in uh, quite lowly valued companies. Um and companies that are uh, very committed to making changes to improve themselves. And, and we've always found that as quite a, an interesting point in time to, to invest in, in, in companies. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. would you say you're a, a value investor then? There's a value tilt to what we do. I think where the fund does its best work is in backing companies um, that manage a transition from being seen as, as not being able to grow uh, or having growth challenges um, and transitioning through to growth again through the management actions that take place, through the strategic actions that take place. And so whilst we start with a value mindset, I think the real value that we create for our shareholders um, is if we are successful in backing businesses that transition to growth through their transformation initiatives. And that can be really, really interesting. Um, you capture the sort of value recovery trade uh, where, you know, a company is seen as less bad by the stock market. It's not, you know, the, yeah. the revenues are recovered, margins are now stable, uh, cash generations improved. Um, and you get that recapture of the multiple um, going up a little bit on that change. But then you also capture um, the dynamic of, of a business transitioning to growth. And typically the market will pay a higher multiple for growth businesses if they see that growth as sustainable. So, you know, sort of two ways that, that we try and um, create value for our sh- shareholders through through the investments we make. Okay. And how, how do you find these companies? I mean, are you are you sort of screening or, or is it more like you're, you know, you're reading the financial pages and saying, <laughs> oh, it looks like there's quite a lot going on there and, I, and it's not all been good? All, all, of, all, of, all of the above, really. Um, yeah. You know, you, you, you sort of very alive to, to what's going on in the stock market at a company level. We only invest in the UK. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth saying that. Um, and therefore, yeah. and I've only ever done uh, UK, uh, which probably means after, you know, 20 something years of doing it that I kind of know the sort of the investments available to, to, to me and you know we know a lot of the individuals uh, that run these businesses you come across them you know quite often sometimes um, yeah. and so we, we kind of know our market as it were um, so yeah we're very alive to what we're looking for what are we looking for 
businesses where the boards recognize a need for change uh, business uh, situations where um, the uh, analysts and the investors are, are sort of quite pessimistic because something um, bad has happened bad is a uh, the wrong word, but there's been a degradation of financial returns, degradation in revenue growth, degradation in margins, return on capital employed. Um, a few management decisions haven't quite worked. Investment in a business or service that doesn't generate the value that it should have done. Um, competition coming through to affect returns for a company, um, and, and management not doing the right things to to kind of you know to to manage the business and manage against competition effectively. Um, yeah. If you look for those sort of situations and invest only at that point in time where the board recognizes the need for change, I think you can you can give yourself um, a better opportunity uh, for, for making a, a return and for skewing uh, the outcomes in your favor. Um, the, the, the one thing I can guarantee is that when you invest in a company that's committed to change, the next capital allocation decision, so the next big strategic decision they take, uh, will be aimed at improving their financial outlook, um, aimed at improving earnings, stabilizing earnings, improving cash generation, stabilizing cash generation, and improving balance sheet or stabilizing balance sheet. With that yeah. in mind, you know, you're giving yourself a, be a better skew to the outcomes if you back at that point in time where you know the board's committed to change. They create management change that creates strategic change. The strategy is focused on the right things, improving cash flow and return on capital. Um, yet the stock market is still worrying about what happened previously. You've got a board looking forward. You've got a stock market looking backwards. You've got a set of pessimistic forecasts. You've got a pessimistic uh, rating on current earnings because the, the recent experience has been bad. And actually that all adds up to being quite an interesting point to invest in a company. Yeah. Can I can I follow up on that point about the board being committed to change? Because, you know, there are, um, you know, I, I don't know whether you, you call yourself an activist investor, but there are active investors who, you know, are very interested in investing in companies and, you know, replacing the board, um, you know, getting their affiliates on the board uh, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, has that emphasis come from experiences in the past where, where you've invested in a company where you, the board doesn't see eye to eye with you in a way and the outcome has been ugly? No, I think we, we work in, in a bit more of a collaborative way. Um, okay. You know, it's a sort of state of mind, really. I, you know, we, we try and engage uh, with companies uh, in the right way. And I think if you engage in the right way with companies and boards, you typically find the right path forward. I don't. I don't particularly believe in in going in making a big noise um, and telling companies the way forward. You know, I, th I think it's very difficult. We sit behind screens and spreadsheets. We have a view. We have yeah. a well formed view given our exposure to previous situations that might look like this one that we then can take to the board and and sort of you know uh, and we can air that view and see how it lands with the board and how it sits with their future strategic. Um, uh, uh, framework but I don't think you get the best out of companies when you go in with a sort of you know an aggressive you should be doing it like this there is no other alternative way forward um, yeah. I just I think that they they clam up to to you as an investor um, and, and that's not the approach we want to take we, we are typically going in at the point in time where the board is being its own activist where the board is hiring new CEOs finance directors, heads of divisions to be the activists within the company. Now, when things then subsequently don't go to the pre-agreed plan or path, yes. you then need to start asking questions about why. 
what is what is it that is affecting the ability to uh, improve cash flow, to improve returns, to make the requisite changes, to sell the division or asset that needs to be sold, um, to recycle capital. That could be a management thing. It could be uh, a management capability issue. It could be something that you don't understand that is getting in the way within the organisation. At that particular point in time, I think you need to ask tougher, harder questions. Uh, and we are absolutely um, the first to do that. We don't, when things aren't going as quickly as we would have thought, thought or hoped, we don't just walk away. We ask the questions why. Uh, and we pride ourselves on asking the questions in the right way. Um, mm. Occasionally, you might want to step into the sort of path where you, you've taken a, a different view to the executive team. And, you know, you need to air it with the chair and the board and try and understand, try and understand why you're sort of at a different path or view about future capital allocation. Um, and only very occasionally would that then sort of create a situation for us, I'm talking about here, where we would have to, um, in fact, I can think of no situation where we've had uh, some sort of proxy fight with a company. It's just not what we right. do. Um, you know, we're working in collaboration with companies. I think where where you have a big investment in a company and suddenly the board take a decision, say, say for example, in an M&A situation where the board take a decision to either spend some capital uh, on, a, on a business or sell themselves uh, to, a, to a company or, or private equity buyer where you have a different view of the value uh, of the business um, that either they're buying uh, or uh, the value of the business that um, is being sold, i.e. your business, I think at those points you can step in and be a bit more... Um, uh, blunt. <laughs> yeah, you can be a bit more blunt, and I think you can, you can, you can sort of try and be more vocal in a, in a more public manner uh, about what's going on. I mean, we, we I think, um, have been quite vocal in a couple of situations in the last 18 months. Um, yeah, where we thought companies were being taken private uh, at the wrong price. Um, you know, we were vocal in, in a situation with a company called St. Modwin where we thought the board were um, underselling um, the value of the company. Similar with DMGT, uh, which was taken private by the Rothermere family. Similar with Morrison's, you know, which was subject to a number of bids, actually. Uh, we had a very firm view of the value. Um, and so, look, in those situations, yes, absolutely, we'll step up. We have... Um, we have a fiduciary duty to make sure that we get fair value for the for the asset for our shareholders, uh, and to hold the boards to account. But I don't think it's a you know when we look at a situation, we don't say right we're going to have to get activists with this. That's just not us. Um, we want to be constructively engaged with the company. We want to be um, we want to have a sort of fairly symbiotic relationship with that company with the management team, and you know we'll stay with these companies for a long time. We'll invest okay. uh, for, you know, our, our investing timeline is long. You know, that I think if I look at the top three or four positions in the portfolio, they've been in the portfolio for kind of 10, six and, you know, eight years between them. And it's, you know, this, this, this we'll, we'll back long term strategic transformation. Um, yeah. Okay. And b before we move on, maybe to talk a bit more specifically about some of those companies, c can you tell us a little bit of the background about how you, you know, how you started this fund? Sure. Um, well, I came to the stock Back market. in 2008, I think. Yeah, it was in 2008, correct. It was actually in the teeth of the financial crisis. It was um, It was supposed to be the Friday the 13th of 
June 2008 and we decided that Friday the 13th was not a good omen and so we shifted (laughs) it to Monday the 16th of June 2008. It was still in the teeth of the financial crisis. Um, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think in the first three weeks of the fund being launched, the the NAV of the fund um, was down about 30% because the stock market was down about, that was 28% I think, uh, with the stock market down a bit more than that. but, you know, things recovered very quickly. And obviously, um, you know, the sort of world changed a bit in 2009. And, you know, we, we marked the lows of the financial crisis. And, and the fund did reasonably well through that period uh, in 2008, 2009. It outperformed its benchmark, the FTSE All Share uh, Total Return Index. And then, of course, the stock markets recovered. We had a secondary crisis with the Eurozone crisis in 11. Uh, tw- uh, um, which wasn't great for this fund, but uh, in 12, 13, 14, performed very well. Um, so, yeah, so it, it was formed. Why was it formed? This was at, at Hambro, it was the fourth of four UK funds. Um, we had a growth fund, we had an income fund, we had uh, UK, an opportunities fund. Um, and uh, we didn't have anything that sort of fit a sort of recovery special sits thesis. Um, and so the idea and, and it fit the way I thought about stocks. I, I like essentially mm. good companies that have fallen from grace, fallen from, on tough times. But there is essentially a very good business at the heart still um, a cash generative business. It's just been mismanaged to some degree or hasn't managed its issues correctly. Um, I started implementing that as an idea, as a strategy uh, for the UK Growth Fund here, actually. Uh, I okay. came to Hambro in 2003. I'd been in the stock market for seven years at that particular point in time on what we call the sell side. I was uh, in the stockbroking community. Um, but Mark Costa... Were, were, were you an analyst? or I started life as an analyst in my very first job in 1996, but then progressed through to institutional sales. Right. Um, and that's where I met uh, an individual called Mark Costa, who runs our UK Growth Fund still to this day. And he asked me to be his number two in 2003. Um, so I joined. And, and at that point in time, there were only two funds at Hambro. Um, the UK Growth Fund, which Mark ran, uh, and uh, uh, the European Fund, which a guy called Rob Marsden ran. Um, and so, yeah, okay. so I, I was with Mark for five years, developed this sort of, uh, this more value-tilted approach within that growth fund. And, you know, Mark could see what made me tick as an investor and I think we both agreed that I'd have to go in a different direction uh he supported me to do that um internally and yeah the rest is history but it was it was no mean feat to get this fund launched um within Hambro in 2008 I must tell you um we started with two million pounds of the the company's money and they don't give out their money they didn't at that point hadn't given their money to anyone. Um, we had a third party. <laughs> we had a third party that usually provided seed capital. But anyway, there we go. That's the history of the the fund. Okay. Well, and you know, so you mentioned there was a um, well after the NAV fell thirty percent quite quite quickly after launch. You mentioned you had a very strong rebrand, rebound and then yes. strong period of performance after the eurozone crisis as well. Um, and yet performance has been weaker in the in the last five years. Um, you, you've lagged the FTSE all share. I mean, I'll, I'll just quickly read some numbers. So five years to end of September, uh, about a 2.2% return versus 11.4% for the FTSE all share. Um, so behind the benchmark a bit, I mean, what, what do you feel has gone wrong during that more recent period? And what, what do you feel has gone right? Uh, 
Yeah, I don't quite see it like that. Um, okay. It's, it has been a very tough look. You've got to think uh, about what's been going on in the UK. Look, we're a pure, pure UK fund and we run a sort of value tilted approach to investing. Now, you know, in the period that you talk about, we've had, um, let's not forget in 2015, we, we had a Scottish referendum, which was a really tricky event for UK investors. And, and it's mm. so, I think it's set in, uh, in chain a sort of, um, in international investors, a mindset over the UK that the UK was a, a tricky place to invest in. Of course, 2016 brought the Brexit vote um, and then all of the issues that that brought with it um, as well. Uh, and actually, I think that we, that then obviously manifested in the sort of 2019 situation where you know Boris was returned with quite a big mandate. Um, and then we had COVID, which um, hit the UK a bit harder than it did other countries, to, to, to call it, you know, to, just sort of bluntly. Um, so you've had a succession of crises. You've also got a UK market that is a bit more value. It's real assets, okay? Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do technology particularly well. Um, and there was a flavor for many years, 2016, 17, 18, 19, and then made really... Uh, 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 aggressively through 20 post-COVID, a flavour for technology and biotech stocks, um, which we don't do in the UK. So it's a, se- yeah. a succession of issues. Now, when I look at it, we performed well in 2016. We outperformed the market. The average UK fund didn't. 2017, we outperformed the market. The average UK fund didn't. 2018, we slightly underperformed. The average UK market, uh, fund outperformed. And then in 19, we outperformed where the average didn't. Uh, 20 was our big issue. 2020 was the worst period of returns for this fund. Um, It was tricky for all the reasons I mentioned. Um, You know, if you ran anything that was value tilted in 2020 post-COVID, it was just not a fun place to be. Um, You know, if you didn't run a growth mandate, it was very tricky uh, in 2020. Now, in 2021, we bounced back. We outperformed the market by quite a meaningful amount. Uh, And year to date in 22, whilst below... Um, we're at the sort of top of our cohort um, or near the top of our cohort that we compare with, um, you know, and, and it's been a very tough year for, for, for fund managers. Again, you know, yeah. average fund out underperforming by quite a large number, you know, double digit underperformance of the benchmark um, where we're sort of in at this particular moment in time in and around the benchmark. So, look, I see it slightly differently. We had one very bad year, which was 2020. That, of course, does damage to your um, five-year return and it's going to stay in the numbers for a few years until it rolls out uh, but I think actually we can hold our heads up very well you know on a since inception basis you know over 10 years and then in the individual discrete years actually we've had more wins than losses in that period of time so that's how I see it. Okay well and, and more, more recently um, you've discussed how some of your holdings have been affected by the, the kind of spillover of chaos from, from the big sell-off of uh, of gilts uk government bonds um particularly property companies i think and other holdings yeah. which are sensitive to interest rates Absolutely. and gilt yields yeah i mean i suppose you know it'd be interesting to hear about that but i mean the, the what the way you were speaking just then it makes me think you know in the past you performed very strongly um uh during market rebounds i mean are, are you concerned that in a way we, we've gone from covid to now uh, another <laughs> in, difficult environment where you know we've got a kind of global recession and a particularly bad situation in in the uk it looks like i mean is that is that is that worrying you or well it, it, it worries in the in the sort of framework of you know it makes 
the UK look like a sort of uninvestable region to some degree. Yeah. You know, for, we've had many attempts at trying to call the bottom in the UK for international investors, um, you know, over the last few years. And I think if you cry wolf one too many times, you know, people end up not listening. And I just think that's really interesting at this particular point in time, because we're probably uh, with the very recent changes that have been made politically uh, with uh, Rishi Sunak now coming in. um, And I think a complete shift uh, in the approach that's going to be taken economically, uh, fiscally, um, I think we're probably in for a period now of a little bit more stability. It won't be great for people, of course. It's going to be tough out there. Taxes will go up for everybody, um, most likely. Government spending will be curtailed in various areas. That's not, you know, it's not great to hear. Um, But it's, I think, an inevitable outcome of the position we find ourselves in post-COVID, where, you know, through uh, government support, fiscal support, uh, furlough schemes, um, you know, government borrowing did go up, you know, and we, 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 you have to deal with the situation you're in. The situation we're in at the moment calls for a bit more restraint on spending at government level, and it does call for a, few, uh, a, a bit higher uh, tax take uh, from individuals, but also from corporates as well. And we're seeing that in some sectors, of course, with windfall taxes and more debate about, about that. But I actually yeah. think that's quite interesting. I think it probably gets us into a position of just a bit more stability particularly in the eyes of international investors. And, you know, added to that, you find the UK market probably the cheapest it's been for generation. Any generation, um, you know, of current investors will will struggle to go back far enough to have been around at a time when the UK was cheaper or more interesting. Um, and add to that the fact that people have been allocating away from the UK because of Brexit, because of Scottish referendums, mm-hmm. because of the COVID crisis because of a bit of political instability, you find yourself with a cheap market where there are not a lot of investors. People have been allocating away, not coming to the UK at a point in time where actually we're starting to make the right economic and political decisions uh, to make the best of uh, in absolutely a tricky situation. And I find that quite interesting. I Mm. find that quite interesting at this particular point in time. Okay, so you you know you don't feel too bad about the outlook for the fund then. I think it's okay. I mean, when you're faced with a cohort of stocks in the UK that probably have a median PE of eight, um, you know, I I I struggle to be you know with, with a sort of contrarian mindset and a sort of valuation mindset. You know, first off, I struggle I struggle to make that into a negative story. Um, mm. You know, when I add to the fact that people have been allocating away from the UK for so long and think of us as a basket case. Um, and I look at what's av- the quality of companies that are available to us and, you know, the value that the, the valuation they're available to us at. I, I find that really quite interesting, actually. Yeah. But, well, OK, well, thanks. Let, let's come on to some of those companies a bit more. Um, I mean, I think it'll be you know interesting for people to hear a bit more about some of the companies you've engaged with and. Uh, you know, Pearson um, jumped out at me in the portfolio, one of your top 10 holdings. I think you invested for the first time in 2020. Is that right? We did. Yeah, we did. We sort of, um, well, look, going back to the thesis here of business transformation, management change, strategic change. So uh, coming out of 2019 into 2020, uh, the CEO of Pearson 
um, decided to retire. Um, so John Fallon was leaving. The company were deciding to go in a slightly different direction with a different type of CEO and a different type of approach. They'd met, spent a lot of time and money on shifting an essentially textbook business to a digital business. Um, that was a painful transition. We weren't involved. Uh, it was painful financially. Uh, it was painful in the mindset of investors. And actually, so at the beginning of 2020, we saw a situation with a fresh approach, um, a low rating, uh, skeptical investors. The majority of the financial pain from managing a print to digital transition having been taken. A huge investment in making the business uh, more uh, tech enabled over the past sort of three to five years as well, now coming to an end, a very good and well-invested technology platform. Um, And we thought that really would be quite interesting. A a global leader as well, you know, that that sits and resides on the UK market, still a global education uh, leader. And of course, education being a key enabler for many uh, countries, um, you know, for 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 um, for improvement, um, for you know, for for allowing people to sort of pull themselves out of poverty, etc. So actually, in a really interesting space as well, it just hadn't been managed in our view um, in the right way or as well as it could have been, particularly on a narrative basis. So we made an investment. Oh, we did some work, obviously made an investment. And I think the success of that investment as we sit here today. Um, so two years later, the shares have effectively doubled in a very, very tricky stock market, um, has been, uh, a positive surprise for us, but also, uh, in to some degree, not a surprise because of all of the good assets that the company has. Um, you know, it's a leader in assessment and qualifications in the US and and in the UK. We thought that business was undervalued. It's a leader in clinical assessment, which, of course, has come to the fore post-COVID uh, with lots of mental health issues across um, various different cohorts, but particularly in the sort of younger and education segment. Um, virtual schooling, very important post-COVID. Um, and, of course, then that, that print to digital transition. Um, so we back we we backed all of these things. We backed the value in these assets that we thought the market undervalued. And yeah, so far the way that the board has um, created value from that situation has been very positive. And what what do you do now? I mean, <laughs> do, do you hang on for the ride or or, or, or hope for a further re-rating? Look, I don't think uh, I don't. <laughs> I think we hang on for the ride. I don't think yeah. without a good reason to sell the shares. Um, you know, I think that they're performing well strategically. I think when we go into any situation, you know, I, I kind of our minimum mindset is can we can we effectively double um, uh, the value of our starting investment over a sort of five year period? We've definitely made more value more quickly or had more value delivered more quickly than we would have thought. But um, I just think that proves how much value was within Pearson. You know, I think about other assets that we've had in the portfolio over the last five years, DMGT, Euro Money, um, you know, Vodafone at the moment we could talk about. There's been Mm. real some of the parts value. We do a lot of good work in trying to uh, unpick sort of onion type investments, a bit conglomerate like structures where the the kind of the worst performing part of that conglomerate drags down the value of the whole. And within that, if you get the right management team that are focused on that are focused on outing the value of the good bits within the conglomerate by maybe selling off 
refocusing on those good bits, selling off the, the bits that aren't core, focusing on the bits that are core, uh, it can derive a lot of value. You know, the transition yeah. that DM that led to DMGT being taken private actually saw the business shrink in scale dramatically, sell off a lot of assets over a four year, five year period. Uh, and those assets were sold at markedly higher values than the stock market attributed to those assets. And that transition over a five year period saw us to um, saw us see a, a two to three times our investment. And if we can sort of replicate that consistently, and Pearson's another one, assessments and qualifications, undervalued within the whole, virtual schooling, undervalued within the whole, and the whole was dragged down by an underperforming higher education business that the management team is now getting its head, it's, you know, getting more control over and is turning around, that that creates a platform for the other pieces of the organisation to sort of rise up. Uh, I think that's a, it's a good recipe for investment uh, and it's a good recipe for us to try and replicate uh, in in different situations and Vodafone is one of those situations that yeah. looks like that at the moment. Okay well let's talk about that a bit more because I mean Vodafone shares, shares have halved over five years I think what, what what what's the case there? Well look it's very you know as I say it's it's look it's a case for um, simp- of simplification and focus okay so so Vodafone as a business uh, contract some of its issues back to a uh, big acquisition it did, um, which uh, in, in Germany, uh, which saddled the company with quite a lot of debt, uh, and the performance of the particular assets uh, in Germany uh, were, wasn't as good as expected. There's been lots of challenges out there in the world, but so that's the kind of source of the issues. And you know, with a bit um, higher debt, the stock market has been a bit uh, nervous about the equity. Uh, of the company and the rating has come down. Um, all other things being equal, I don't think that would be an interesting investing investment for us. I, if that's all, all that you've got, um, but that's not all that you've got. You've got a board that is absolutely committed to change. You've got an executive team absolutely committed to focusing around their core and largest assets uh, in Europe and Africa. So they are selling uh, non-core assets uh, across the globe and they are splitting out high-valued infrastructure assets from the organization, so think mobile tower assets, um, and are in the process of thinking about whether they monetize those assets. The money that's brought in from asset sales will be used to um, shrink the balance sheet, to pay down debt, um, to de-risk the business, and to reinvest in their core markets, whether that's the UK, where they're at the moment, uh, if you believe the press, seeking a merger with, um, with uh, three uh, the fourth network provider in the UK to bulk up. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, would you support that? If it I would support that. Again? I support anything that would. I support focus and simplicity. We like businesses to be deep in less markets, not to be shallow in lots of markets. And any process of strategic transformation that involves a business focusing on less assets, but with more capital behind those assets, where where. They have good market share with those assets. Um, I think you have to support that. I think that is good financial management. It's good business management. Um, so, yes, yeah. Yeah, we do support that. We support the idea of trying to fix Spain, which has been an issue for them. We support the idea of maybe trying to sell Italy, which has been an issue, uh, less so than Spain. We support selling Vantage Towers, uh, which is an asset that, if you believe, you know, at current valuations for tower assets are 25 times EBITDA. 
Vodafone Trade Group trades on five times EBITDA. To be able to sell an asset at 25 times EBITDA, you won't lose much EBITDA. You will gain lots of cash that you can use to offset against your balance sheet. I think that is very supportive to a company on five times EBITDA. And, and, you know, that's the thesis. Focus, simplification, de-risking. Okay. I mean, it it might help people to hear... um... You know, what What about times when the thesis doesn't work out and you have to decide to cut your losses? I mean, can you can you discuss any decisions recently that you've taken like that? Yeah, well, look, there's been a few. I think we were sort of well known for backing um, a business called The Restaurant Group that uh, bought uh, Wagamama, a very good uh, restaurant chain in the UK, uh, yeah. a strong performing chain, one that I'm sure we all have been to and, and like and like using. But you know, again, it saddled the business with debt when they t- when they bought that. Uh, it saddled the restaurant group uh, corporation with debt when they bought Wagamama's, and that ended up with um, a couple of fundraisings uh, and essentially a situation where we lost quite a bit of value for our clients, and um, we had to take a decision, which we did in 2020 to walk away now we took that decision at a very good time we think Um, we bided our time we backed the strategic fundraisings to rebuild the balance sheet post-covid we actually think the management team at that particular time did a fantastic job post-covid of restructuring the business and putting it in a good place to be able to go to shareholders and get more capital but then the stock market in the sort of vaccine euphoria um, took the valuation of that asset to what to a level that we thought was ridiculous and and we took the opportunity to walk away um cut our losses but you know they they were less uh, than they could have been um so that's a very good example um you know more recently i think you have to ask yourself fundamental questions if the company uh, if the first investment thesis that you make goes awry and um then external factors come into play that mean that the return on capital targets that you had are unlikely to be achieved uh, and the earnings targets are unlikely to be achieved you have to you know you have to sort of take a step back and reassess uh, yeah. and we did that in the case of restaurant group okay well i mean i think um you know it's clear that your uh, your approach to companies is kind of uh, uh idiosyncratic maybe rather than thematic but um can you give us a flavor of of, of what you've been doing in the fund more recently you know the, the kind of areas you've been seeing opportunities in well, look, I, I, you know, uh, yeah, um, it is idiosyncratic. I mean, we, we, we pride ourselves on generating an idiosyncratic return for our, for our shareholders, but we live in a world where um, the sort of factor, the, the economic exposures of stock right. tend to be everything more important. Everything correlated. Yeah, everything's correlated. Everything, you know, your exposure to, to a macro factor is more important than what's, than what's going on underneath. And that's fine. You, that just means we have to be more patient. I think if we put that mindset that cap on i am intrigued by the way some property assets have performed recently um right you know, because because of the view of where interest rates might go in the uk um i'm not gonna can you, can you, can you explain that for us in in layman's terms alex so you know we, we have interest rates going up in the uk and that's yeah that's basically hitting property prices right yeah yeah so interest rates are going up and if you mix that with the sort of um the fiscal largesse that was going was being proposed by um the, the Liz Truss uh, government, which obviously now is not, not going to happen, at a point in time where the government was trying to support individuals through the energy crisis as well, yeah. at a point in time where the government had had to support individuals post-COVID, um, that was too much 
I think, in the mindset of international investors for uh, the UK government to balance. Um, you know, not enough tax income for the spending that they had uh, undertaken. And, you know, when you become a bit of a credit risk, whether you're a company or a government, um, that just means that your your interest rates have to go up. Now, this was not a peculiar thing to the UK. Okay, It was more noisy in the UK and we had a bit of a currency situation, but all interest rates, all borrowing costs for all governments were going up at the same time, broadly. Um, but it just was more noisy in the UK because of that sort of ta- uh, low tax for growth strategy that, that Liz Truss and her government was were were following so uh, as it relates to the real estate industry real estate is linked intrinsically to government bond yields and long-term bond yields so as interest rates go up the value at which you um, value assets like the building that i'm sitting in today has to go up if you if i if we have i don't know what we pay i'm not going to say what we pay to rent this building (laughs) but if you think of any building is a cash flow uh, that cash flow is the rental streams of those that are within the building, and uh, you capitalize that value at whatever the prevailing interest rate is. Really, essentially. Yeah. Now, if you capitalize that value at one, um, that's a high value for this building. If you capitalize it at five, that's a much lower value for this building. Uh, and I think that's broadly what's gone on with the real estate sector. The question becomes the end state for interest mm. rates. And I think at the moment, the stock market is broadly predicting that sort of our interest rate will go to four and three quarters or 5%. Um, I, I'm i not a macroeconomist, so take this with a pinch of salt. I, I do think, given the fiscal policies that we may be about to embark on in the UK, and given some of the challenges, maybe that 5% is a bit high. And maybe right. the number. So if we see a return of something more like austerity, then interest rates won't need to go up so much. Possibly. That would be my thinking. And so okay. in that situation, the pretty ridiculous, I don't mind using quite a big word, the ridiculous falls in valuations of some of our property assets. I'll take one, LandSec, Land Securities, it used to be called, one of the largest uh, property owners in the UK that's listed. You know, it trades at a near 60% discount to the last stated NAV, you know, wow. and, and yeah, that's ridiculous, really, to be honest. I mean, that, that that's sort of predicting quite a material shift in value of the assets and possibly brings into question whether the company has the right balance sheet, which is ludicrous in our view. So, so look, I, 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 we're putting a bit more money to work in um, rate sensitive companies. That might be banks, might be insurance companies, it might be property companies um but all the time we're trying to make sure that we have idiosyncratic business transformation and i can't think of a more idiosyncratic business transformation than landsec at the moment as it shifts the portfolio from a kind of dry office assets where they just take the income to being more of a development-led organization where they try and create value from bigger developments um in kind of urban uh, opportunities uh, which is a mix mixed use you know retail plus office plus residential plus leisure um you know and i mm. think that's quite a big transition you sort of you know go, going from trying to earn sort of four four percent income on an asset to trying to develop uh, a, a sort of area um for a sort of 11 12 percent return and that's that's quite a good transition okay 
Well, an interesting note to finish on from an investment perspective there. I suppose last thing I just wanted to ask is whether you, you know, what outside of investment, you know, tell us a bit more about yourself and, and what, what you like, what you like doing, what you're interested in. Well, uh, I, what do I like doing? I, I, I like doing lots of things, playing sport and, you know, getting out there, yeah. and, you know, but I don't get the chance to do that because I've got three young kids. Um, so I I've got a six, a, a four, nearly four and a two year old. And uh, that keeps me supremely busy at the weekends uh just sort of ferrying them around and trying to keep them I'm busy sure. and interested um but when i get a chance um you know i'll play a bit of golf do some running um play some tennis and support chelsea uh obviously gotcha which, uh, yeah well maybe down the line as they grow up a bit more you'll be able to play more, more sports with your kids <laughs> i'll be too old by then well well we'll see okay alex well uh, that's all we've got time for i think um so yeah last thing to say for me really as well thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today okay thanks jeremy thanks for having me great thank you and thanks everyone uh, for listening and please look out for more funds fanatic show podcasts soon 